is 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 through 14. So you could just turn your Bible or your Bible app there. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until the day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me, in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Good morning. We are continuing our Sunday morning teaching series today in the book of 2 Timothy. This is the last letter that Paul wrote shortly before his death, and he wrote it from prison where things aren't looking too good for him. He's chained in a cold cell, abandoned by nearly everyone, and he's facing certain death. He's about to be executed. And yet, as we saw last week, Paul is not consumed with himself, not consumed with his own future, but he's looking outward. He's concerned about the church and about her future, concerned because he knows that the church is going to continue to face challenges. There are going to be challenges that come in from outside as she lives in a world that is antagonistic to her faith. And there's going to be challenges from within, from false teachers who will alter the gospel, trying to remove some of the tension between the church and the larger world. And so Paul in this letter is handing some of, off some of the responsibility for this next stage of the church's life, passing the relay baton, as it were, to Timothy. And we ended last week with Paul reminding Timothy that God has given him a spirit of power, of love, and of self-control, not a spirit of fear. And that's something that Timothy needs to hear over and over and over again. You hear Paul today urging Timothy in verse 8 not to be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, not to be ashamed of Paul, Christ's messenger. You realize that fear and shame go together. Paul understands this about Timothy. If you remember from last week, they, they have shared a really close relationship. Paul has an extremely high opinion of Timothy, but he also knows that Timothy has the potential to be ashamed knows that Timothy can be tempted to avoid situations, to keep his thoughts to himself, to not engage other people when he knows that what he believes is going to conflict with what someone else believes. Not engage when being more open about his beliefs is going to open him up to shame, to ridicule, loss of face, or, or some worse kind of suffering or humiliation. Paul knows that it's possible for Timothy to be ashamed, and so Paul counsels him on how to apply the gospel when he's tempted to be ashamed of the gospel. And that's counsel that every one of us needs as well. Because you and I face the same pressures today 
different forms, but the same kinds of pressures that Paul and Timothy did. Same pressures to pull back as people of faith trying to live in an unbelieving world when we suspect that someone might not be supportive of what we believe. And so today, Paul's not simply counseling Timothy, he's counseling you and me this morning as well. So to understand what fearful people need when we are tempted to be ashamed of our faith, we need to see three things in our passage today. First, we need to see why there's the possibility of shame that's connected to the gospel. Second, we need to see what we need in order not to be ashamed. And third, we need to see what, we're, what we need to do instead. So three things today. Why you might be ashamed, why you should not be, and what you have to do instead. Let's dive in. First, Paul offers Timothy a choice in verse 8. He says, Do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Timothy has a choice. He can either be ashamed of the gospel or he can suffer for it, but that's it. Once you embrace the gospel, you only have those two options, shame or suffering. If you think about it a little bit, at, at first glance, that, that just seems odd. Okay, what is the message about our Lord, the testimony about our Lord? It's that Jesus spent his entire life teaching about God, helping thousands, tens of thousands of people, then later was unjustly oppressed by the state, wrongly arrested, falsely accused, and executed, despite everyone involved knowing that he was completely innocent. And then later still, God vindicated him by raising him from the dead. You think about that and you think, why would you ever come close to suffering for saying that? Why would a story about a good, righteous man who died and is now alive inspire so much animosity? Ancient Greece and Rome had mythologies of people who lived forever, of deified mortals, mortals who became immortal, but none of those stories inspired the kind of animosity that Paul keeps experiencing throughout his life. In 2 Corinthians 11, he talks about some of the things that people have done to him, how he's been whipped, beaten, stoned, how he's been in danger, whether he's among his own people, the Jews, or among the Gentiles, and you just have to ask why. Okay, you could imagine a couple different responses to this account of our Lord. You could imagine someone hearing this account about Jesus and rejecting it. That's just a fairy tale. Or you could imagine them putting it in the category of a Greco-Roman myth of a morality tale. This is something to inculcate virtue. But why would anyone have to suffer because of this? And why would the state get involved and use its power to silence Paul? He's not rabble-rousing, not leading a movement to overthrow the government. He's not a political figure in any sense of the word. Christians at that time are still a very small minority. So why chain him up like a dangerous animal? Why haul him before a court and sentence him to death? It's because the message he carried is not about a good man and a bad government. It's not about a mortal becoming immortal. It's the other way around. The gospel message is about a great God and a really bad human race. 
It's about a holy God who is too good to tolerate anything less than goodness in his world. And it's about a humanity that willfully rejects his kind of goodness, tries to set up their own standards in his place. It's about a God of justice and an arrogant humanity that has painted a bullseye on our chests for his judgment and wrath a bullseye that we can't scrub off. And yet the gospel is about more than just bad news. It's a proclamation of more than just judgment. It's a message of good news. Because it's about a gracious God who makes a way to pardon these same people who started a war against him for no good reason. It's about a humble God who condescends to become a man in order to rescue an unfaithful humanity who from the time of the Garden of Eden onward have rejected him, have tried to raise ourselves up and put ourselves in his place, have tried to become like God. And so the message of the Lord elevates God's own holiness while it highlights our betrayal. It says that he is the only one who can help us. It emphasizes his kindness while spotlighting our helplessness because we can't help ourselves. It says that we are not autonomous, that he is the king, and that you cannot rebel against the king, cannot make your own decisions about what to do in his world and get away with it forever. And it's that message, this message of our Lord, that's just plain offensive to us in our humanity ever since we tried to get out from under God's authority. And this gospel comes along then to remind us that the truth is we've never been autonomous. We have always been entirely dependent on God. It reminds us that there's not a single thing that we have that does not owe its existence to him in some way. There's not a thing that we can truly know apart from him. Okay, think it out. Since everything that we can think about comes from him, we have to know what he thinks about it first in order to have any real knowledge of it. And so to know anything, we first have to hear from him, and that's been true from the beginning. What's the first thing that God does after he makes humanity? He speaks to them, talks to them, teaches them things that they can't know in any other way unless he talks to them. He has to tell them that they are made in his image. He has to tell them that because there's no other way that they could know that. He has to tell them that he is their maker, that there is intention, there's purpose, there's meaning behind why they're here. He has to tell them that they reflect him, that they are male and female, that they are to care for this world together in their maleness and femaleness. He tells them that there are certain things that they can do in this world that he approves of. They can eat the fruit from any tree in the garden, and there are certain things that they must not do, that there are things he disapproves of, like they must not eat from one certain tree. This all takes place before sin and suffering enter our world. In a perfect world, before the enemy of our souls slithered into the garden, tempting our first ancestors to become like God, to throw off God's authority. Before all of that, human beings were completely 100% dependent on God. 
not just for physical things and their own beings, but for how to understand and work with physical things and their own beings. And in our arrogance, humanity rejected that dependency, set our hearts on being autonomous, and we brought the wrath of God down on our heads. And humanity hates hearing that because our hearts are still set on autonomy. And so we hate hearing that we can't be good enough on our own, hate that we can't escape ignorance on our own, hate that we can't undo the evil and suffering that we've brought into this world on our own. Proclaim that message or just identify with someone who does proclaim that message and you will suffer. That's what got Paul into trouble. You go back to the passage. In verses 9 and 10, he unpacks this amazing gospel that God has given us a Savior in Christ Jesus. And then he says that it's this gospel for which, verse 11, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. Why does Paul suffer? Because he proclaims this gospel of Jesus Christ in a world that proclaims a very different gospel. See, the word gospel does not originate with Christians. The word gospel was used in the Roman world. It was used of the emperor in particular. Tom Wright says in his commentary that the gospel, quote, was the royal message on which the Roman Empire was built, the announcement of Caesar as Lord, the promise of his power to save the world, the prospect of his royal appearance in a city or province that obeyed his rule. The Roman gospel proclaimed that the solution to all the problems of humanity resided in a mere human being, that Caesar is Lord, that humanity has the resources within itself to save itself. And in that way, the Roman gospel appeals to our human longing for autonomy. It says that we have what we need within us, among us, to build a good society, to be good people. And so when Paul comes along and proclaims that Jesus is Lord, that's a different gospel. It's a different Lord, a different Savior of the world. And within that context, that's what? That's treason. That's to challenge the power and the might of Rome. And that, Paul says, is why I suffer. It's because the gospel of Jesus Christ is a direct challenge to a world that believes that we have the power and ability to give ourselves a bigger, better future. It's a direct challenge to a world that prizes our autonomy from God above all other things. It's a direct challenge that cannot be ignored by this world, but one that has to be put down or at least marginalized. That's why Paul suffers. But it's also why, verse 8, that he calls Timothy to share in that suffering. See, the reason that Paul suffers is not idiosyncratic. It's not personal to him. It's not because Paul has this abrasive personality, just rubs people the wrong way. It's not that Paul's methods are too aggressive. It's not that he goes out looking for trouble, provoking people into getting upset with him. 
It's not because he's just unlucky and managed to offend the wrong person on the wrong day. Paul isn't any of that, and yet he suffers because by definition the gospel is offensive to this world. And so he invites Timothy, calls him to accept that, look, you're, you're going to suffer too. Because if you are loyal to this God who challenges human autonomy, you can expect to suffer like Paul does. You can expect that on some level. Maybe people will mock you, insult you, vilify you, damage your reputation. Maybe they'll rob you of your freedoms, your possessions, potentially harm you physically. Paul says that's just normal. That's the normal response of an unbelieving world. When you proclaim the good news that it is Christ and only in Christ that God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting people's trespasses against them. Identify yourself with that message or with anyone who proclaims that message. And like Paul, you will also suffer. And notice here, you don't have to go out and do anything special. Just hold to the gospel, and suffering will come to you. That's why it's so easy to be ashamed of that message or of the messengers. Because if you're ashamed, if you pull back, if you don't own that message, you don't identify with the messengers, an unbelieving world won't make you suffer. Being ashamed is understandable, point one. And yet, verse 12, Paul is not ashamed. So point two, why not? Why isn't he ashamed? And what do you and I need to hold on to so that we won't be either? Paul's not ashamed of the gospel for the same reason that the gospel is offensive. Because it's all about God. This God, verse 9, who saved us and called us to a holy calling. Not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. So break it down. What is it that God did? He saved us and called us to a holy calling. That means that he called us to a holy life, to live a holy life. Why did he do that? It is all about him. It's because of his own purpose and grace. It's because of his intentions and his power. When did he do this? This was in his mind to do before the ages began. So before you ever existed, before you had done a single thing, good or bad, God intended to save you. God intended to call you to a holy life, a better life than the one that you would have planned out for yourself. That's why you, being reconciled to God, has nothing to do with your works. It's because it's all about God. And that's why it's the antidote to being ashamed. Because this wasn't your idea. It's God's. He started it. He started thinking about you, started making plans for you, for how you would be reconciled to him. And so the responsibility for the content of the gospel, the responsibility for the offense of the gospel, is his not yours, which means there isn't any shame that attaches to you. See, shame happens when, when, when you have done something, when you've thought something that other people say reflects badly about you. And that's not possible with the gospel because it wasn't your idea in the first place. 
these are not your thoughts about God or about humanity. They're not your thoughts about how to live a good life. They're God's thoughts. All you're doing is what? You're simply holding on to them, holding on to something that he came up with. And your involvement with the gospel is not because of anything you started, not because of your works, but it began with his own purpose and his grace. See, it's not that you started independently looking for God, came up with this idea that I think I'd like to know God. It's not that you figured out how to find him. If that was the case, if it started with you, initiated with you, then yes, shame would make sense. Because the way that you found him and the way that you tell others to find him would reflect on you. It would reflect on your wisdom, on your intelligence, on your godliness. And so if that was the case, you could either be proud of yourself because the path that you took enhances your reputation, makes you look wise, intelligent, good. Or you could be embarrassed because the path makes you look foolish, stupid, bad. But if it's God who saved you and called you by his own purpose and his grace, if the truth is that God started looking for you and that God decided to give you a holy life before the ages began, before there was a you in any shape or form, <laughs> then there's nothing for you to be proud of. And conversely, there's nothing to be ashamed of. More than that, though, if Paul is, if you and I are caught up in those plans that we had nothing to do with creating, then any suffering that we experience because of this gospel is not some kind of random, chaotic accident. But it's also wrapped up in those same gospel plans that not only call you to a holy life, but verse 10, that inevitably lead you to immortality. And because immortality is what God plans for you, an immortal life, that is where you're going to end up. Even if your suffering ends your life here, like it will soon end Paul's life. And so the call from this passage is to remember, you didn't start this. You weren't smart enough to figure out how to save yourself. You weren't strong enough to keep your soul from being separated from God damned for eternity. You didn't come up with the gospel. So don't try to figure out now how to avoid the suffering that comes from being associated with the gospel. Instead, the call is embrace the gospel and embrace everything that comes with it. Why is that? Because the gospel and everything that comes with it comes from this God who has better thoughts and better plans for you than you have ever had for yourself. So stay loyal to him regardless of where that takes you. Stay loyal to the plans that he's caught you up in. Trust his ideas, even if they lead to suffering. And trust his power then to give you the best life that you possibly could have. He called you by his own grace. He extended his power on your behalf when you had no power to save yourself. It'd be really silly then to fall back trying to protect yourself now with your own abilities from suffering. Instead, trust his power to give you that immortal life that he's promised, regardless of the path that it takes to get there. Trust the one who can think far better about your life than you can, who uses his power 
to guarantee you a better life than you could ever give yourself. And that's where Paul lands in verse 12. He says, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed. And I'm convinced he's able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Paul is not ashamed. Why? Because God's already invested in him, has already started doing something, has entrusted him with something, entrusted him with this amazing message, message to proclaim, but also a message to hold on to. This message is going to cost him his life, but that loss of his life will not put a single thing at risk that God is doing. In other words, Paul's saying, God's not about to let anything happen to his investment. He's going to protect that investment regardless of what happens to me. Paul says, I know this because what? I know him. After everything that Jesus went through to rescue me, there's not a chance he's going to let any of his effort go to waste. He absolutely will guard what he's already given me. And so, yeah, Paul, might su Paul will suffer for staying loyal to this message about our Lord. But there's not anything he's going to go through that can take away the least thing that God has intended for him. That's why, point two, Timothy should not be afraid of this gospel. He should rely on this God who brought him into a holy life by his own power and his ideas. That's the important half of the equation. What God does that lets you escape being ashamed. But look at the logic there, because what God does then sets up what you need to do in response. Point three, there is something you need to do in response to what God has already done if you're going to resist being ashamed. You have a part in this. You have to, verse 13, follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Two words here that we need to pay attention to. Follow and guard. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you've heard from me. Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Those two words tell you that the Christian faith is inherently preserving. We receive something from God and we hang on to it. We don't alter it. We don't adjust it. Instead, we preserve what we've been given. In the language here, we accept that there is a pattern of sound words. There is a form, there is a configuration of words that describe our interaction and our relationship with God. It's a pattern that we are to follow. And so once we understand this pattern that we've been given, we hold on to it. We guard this good deposit of the gospel. The same deposit that was entrusted to Paul in verse 12 is what Timothy has heard from him in verse 13. That's the pattern. And Timothy's call now, verse 14, is to guard it, to keep it, to hang on to it, to preserve it. Now, yes, we apply this pattern, this deposit of the gospel, in different ways to different life situations. Life settings always change for each person in whatever time and culture they live. But the content of the message that we bring into those situations 
never changes. <laughs> That's why we're still reading Scripture thousands of years later. The content of the message doesn't change because the fundamental nature of people and the nature of human problems doesn't change. And so the message, the pattern of what people need and of what God provides is always relevant to everyone in any setting. That means we have to be careful to know the pattern, to follow it, and to guard the pattern. Hold on to it, not alter it. And that's actually a lot harder to do than it sounds. Because when you live in an unbelieving world, you learn to think like the larger world does. You learn to think in its thought patterns. You learn to value the things that it values. It's what you hear all the time around you. They get reinforced every time you interact with people in the larger world. They're, they're what you are used to hearing. And over time, when you hear something over and over and over and over, it just has a way of starting to feel right to you. The values feel good to you. And when that happens, the temptation then is to modify the faith or to just stop emphasizing certain parts of the faith that don't fit into the thoughts and values that you hear every day. To stop actively thinking about the parts of the faith that run up against our larger world. And so, yes, if someone brings them up, you would say, yeah, I, that part is true, but when you're on your own, they, they, just, they, they, they don't stick in your mind and you don't think about them. They don't occur to you. For instance, in our modern world, it is very hard to talk about the wrath of God in any meaningful way. It brings up these caricatures of the old mythologies, you know, the raging de divinity, raging deity on the edge of a temper tantrum, just throwing lightning bolts. It seems like, you know, just fairy tale stuff. Or it seems incompatible with our understanding of love. We're not really sure how do wrath and love fit together, and so over time we secretly kind of think, well, they really don't. So we just don't talk about wrath. In that kind of world, it's very uncomfortable to preach about wrath. It's uncomfortable to hear someone else talk about it. It's uncomfortable to reconcile God's wrath with the way that we think about the rest of the world. So we don't preach about it. We don't pray about it. We don't talk together about it. Our songwriters that give us praise songs don't give us new songs that handle wrath and justice. And so we shy from bringing up wrath and hell when we talk to our friends. Thought experiment, don't ask, don't answer this. But when was the last time you talked with anyone outside of a church gathering about God's wrath? Instead, it just kind of drifts out of our working vocabulary when we think about God. And so we end up reducing our understanding of God. We bring him down to someone who, you know, he's, he's really just a pretty nice guy. Someone who does have some preferences for how we act, but he's not super committed to those preferences. In general, he's pretty morally flexible. Do we create that understanding of God on purpose? Do we try to turn him into that kind of God? Are we aware that we're doing that? I'd say most of the time, no. We simply unintentionally adjust the faith so that it fits in 
with our larger world. We modify the faith to be acceptable to our world. And we do so because we let ourselves be less vigilant about guarding the deposit that's been given to us. We let ourselves be less concerned about following the pattern of the sound words that have been passed down to us. Now here's why this is important. Because if you let go of, if you lose one part of the pattern, if you alter one part, there is a ripple effect through all the rest of the pattern, ripple effect through the rest of our faith. If we lose the sense of God's righteous wrath and the sense that hell is the only appropriate response to rejecting him, then we also lose the sense that he has a problem with us that we created. And then it becomes even harder to understand why holiness is that big a deal. Or to even recognize that there is much difference between God's holiness and the way that we live our lives 24-7. We start to think then, we're really pretty okay. Sure, there's some things we probably ought to clean up in our lives, but nothing in our lives that would come remotely close to being offensive to this God. At least not so bad that the images that we read about in Scripture, about the quality of our goodness, would ever apply to us. Images in Zechariah 3 of us standing before God in clothes covered in poop. Or images in Isaiah 64 of our righteousness being like a bloody rag. Or images in Jeremiah 13 of our usefulness to God being like rotted underwear. Downplay God's wrath and you will never think of yourself in those images. It will never occur to you to think like that. But the ripple effect doesn't stop there. It keeps going. Because if God's wrath is not a problem for us, and if we're not really all that bad, we don't really need a savior, a rescuer. You notice in verse 9 that that's the first thing God says he does for us, that he saved us. He thinks that's pretty important. Such an important central part of what Jesus did that verse 10, it's his title. He's our Savior, Christ Jesus. But if there's no wrath to be saved from and nothing in us that we need to be saved from, then we'll stop thinking of sin and salvation when we look at Jesus' life. And instead, our picture of Jesus and what he came to do will necessarily change. Maybe you'll focus on his moral teachings. In which case, he becomes a wise sage, not a savior. Someone to learn from so that you can be a good person. Or you might focus on his miracles, his good deeds, his philanthropy, his charity, so that he becomes a gifted humanitarian, an example for you to emulate. Or maybe you focus on his justice and his willingness to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with the establishment so that he becomes a social activist who supports your own activism. Remove saved Savior from your core understanding of who Jesus is, and you necessarily change what he came to do. Which means you'll start to look to him to solve some other problem a problem that you think is more important than the problem for which God sent him to this earth. But the ripple effect is not done yet. 
Because change who Jesus is, and you change who the church is. Will people still come to church if the pattern of sound words is not there? Probably, at least for a while. But they won't come to worship a gracious God who out of his incredible kindness reached into our lives when he didn't have to, when we had no interest in him, a God who we are now thrilled to have, even if it means that we have to suffer in this life. People won't come to church for that God. Instead, they'll come because church will find a way to scratch a different itch that people feel. An itch to belong, to feel good, to think well of ourselves, to be part of a community that we like. And people won't ask questions like, is this true? Is this pointing me to the real God who really is? Did I see him a little more clearly today? And in the light of who he is, did I see myself and the world around me more clearly? They won't ask questions like that. They'll ask questions like, do I like this? Does it work for me? Does it speak to me about the things that I think are most important? Does it speak to me in the ways that I want to be spoken to? And slowly the liturgy and the values of the church will become shaped around personal desires. So that instead of reforming and reclaiming people's hearts, church will reinforce people's hearts. That's what happens when you're not careful to follow the pattern, not careful to guard the good deposit, but when you accommodate the faith to the larger world, when you let the faith change, or when you actively change it, so that it fits better into how the larger world thinks. When you reduce the tension between the gospel and the world, by paying less attention to parts of the gospel that are likely to make you suffer. Now, please hear me. When you let this kind of accommodation happen, you're no longer holding to the Christian faith, to the pattern of the sound words. But you're now relying on a different faith, from the one that's been passed down to us. You have a different God, a different view of humanity, a different Christ who has a different ministry, who produces a different church, it's a completely different faith. Does that mean you're not a Christian? Not saved or called by Christ? How would I know? That's, that, that's between you and God. What it means is that your theology is not Christian. That you have a non-Christian theology, a non-Christian message, and it means that that message will not do the saving or calling work that God does through his gospel. Now, that's going to mean different things for different ones of us. For some of us, we are just way too comfortable with downplaying parts of the gospel, letting ourselves forget the parts that make us uncomfortable. Might be a large part of why we don't suffer in the kinds of ways that Paul does. We don't suffer because no one knows that we believe anything different about human beings than our world believes. No one knows because we just edit those parts out that we know will cause a problem. 
And we need to take seriously that part of following Jesus means that we commit to embracing the whole pattern of what God has said. Not picking and choosing, not dropping pieces out so that we fit in better with the people around us. For some of us, we haven't made that commitment yet to a robust, fully Christian theology. And we need to. We need to guard the good deposit. Others of us have made that commitment, but we're lazy. We know and believe that God's word is right, but we don't do the hard work of understanding what it has to say to our modern world. Maybe we don't know how to do that, or, or maybe we're distracted by our busy lives. But we don't put the work in to try to learn. And so we end up thinking that God has little to say to the world that we live in. Or we simply default to how our world thinks, because it just makes sense to us. For those of us like that, we need to become more serious about following the pattern of the sound words, about learning the pattern and applying the pattern. It's that combination of following and guarding, knowing and holding on to what we know, that is at the heart of the teaching, preaching, discipling ministry here at Renewal. I was talking with a friend this past week over lunch. He asked me, what percentage of the people in your church understand what you're doing in your preaching, teaching, discipling, counseling? What percentage? I, I, I don't know how to answer a question like that. So let me just tell you, and that way we'll all know. What is it that I'm trying to do? Cards on the table. I'm trying to do a combination of these two things from our passage. Every time that I or the pastoral staff teach or preach or disciple, we have to be very clear in saying, here is the gospel. Here's the pattern of sound teaching that we've been entrusted with. Here's the gospel, and here's what it means for you and for me in our daily lives. Here's how to apply the gospel. It's one thing we're always trying to do. Second thing, we have to be clear and say, here are all the counterfeits to the gospel. Here are the things that modern people in the Philadelphia suburbs rely on instead of the gospel. Here are the things, like autonomy, like believing in a harmless, inoffensive God. Here are the things that if we are not careful to guard what we've been given, this is what we're going to start to sound like and look like. Those two things. Here's the gospel, follow the pattern. Here are the present-day counterfeits to the gospel, guard what you've been given. It's what we're trying to do here at Renewal as we go back out into the larger world. It's that simple. Now, it's one thing to hear that. It's one thing to know that, another to believe it. It's even another thing to live into it, to have that belief shape how you live. And that's something that you and I have to realize we don't have the power to do either. And thankfully, it's not something God expects from us. That's why he says to Timothy at the end of verse 8, that he should share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Rely on something supernatural to share in the suffering of the gospel. Or verse 14, that his ability to guard the good deposit that's been entrusted to him comes from what? From the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. That's where we have to end. Because it'd be really easy right now, given how strong the pull of autonomy is, given how much we have practiced over our lives to be trying to be independent from God, It'd be really easy to make a mistake at this point, to hear this today and think, okay, 
guess I just have to man up, face down my fears. I, I guess I'll just have to try harder to know and hold on to this gospel. It's really easy to default to that. But think for a moment, what is that? That's what God saved you from. From relying on your power again instead of his to live this life that he calls you to. Paul doesn't say that he can suffer and hold on to this gospel because of his own innate abilities. It's not because he has an abnormally high pain threshold or that he's just good at putting his head down and plowing forward or that somehow when something lodges in his brain, it doesn't come out. He says instead, verse 12, he's not ashamed, willing to suffer, hold on to this gospel that brings suffering because he knows whom he has believed. He doesn't know things about God. He knows God intimately, personally, and so he's come to trust him even when he suffers. How do you do that? That's the key that will drive you to not be ashamed and will drive you to follow and guard this gospel. How do you do that? You look again at what Jesus has done for you. You go back to the gospel and you apply it to yourself. You look again at how Jesus saw you clearly, saw what you didn't see, what you probably still don't see, that he saw how offensive your sin is before the holiness of God. And instead of being ashamed of you, instead of turning his face away from you, wanting nothing to do with you, he took your, dis your shame and disgrace from you by taking the responsibility of your sin from you. He owned everything that you have ever done that offends a holy God. And then he stood openly before the Father on the cross and took full responsibility for you, took your bullseye and painted it on his own chest so that the full weight of God's wrath against you fell on him. Jesus was not ashamed of you in the one place in the universe where you would most feel shame, in the direct presence of God, in the place where the least thing that you've ever done wrong would be enough to crush you beneath a weight of sin that's unimaginable, unendurable, in that place, Jesus wasn't embarrassed by you, wasn't embarrassed of you, but took your place and was crushed for you. He bore your shame so that you will live forever in God's presence with his people before the holy angels, feeling absolutely no twinge of shame at all. Why would you trust him? Why would you not be ashamed of Jesus before sinful human beings? Because he was not ashamed of you before a holy God. We now bear the shame before others of being identified with him because he bore our shame before God, having identified himself with us. That's why we gladly share in suffering for the gospel. It's why we follow the pattern of sound words. It's why we cling to the words that he's given to us. Because there's nothing more precious than this Jesus who did this for us out of his great love. Lord Jesus,
I confess that it is way too easy for me to trim the truth. Far too easy to let things drop when I know that people might not be see that appreciatively. Lord, I resonate with feeling shame of you, and I ask for your forgiveness. I ask that for myself, for my brothers and sisters. Thank you that part of our sin that you bore was our too willingness to be to feel shame in our connection with you. Thank you, Lord, that you bore that because you love us and you wanted us. Thank you that we don't relate to you now on the basis of guilt, on the basis of sin, on the basis of shame, but that you allow us to come and talk with you and be friends with you. Lord, teach us to trust you so that we are not ashamed of you. In Jesus' name.